Hungry Trilobite Podcast would like to start by acknowledging these fine conventions. SoonerCon. Despite the pandemic, Central Oklahoma's longest-running pop culture convention is back. They will hold their next event in June of 2022. To support them, fans and artists have rallied together on their Kickstarter, which you can visit. The Kickstarter will run through February 2nd. Go to SoonerCon.com for more details. The Hellmouth Convention. The Hellmouth Convention is a celebration of all pop culture, but specifically things like Buffy, Angel, Firefly, and Dr. Horrible. It is held in Los Angeles, California, and the next event is scheduled for June 3rd through 5th, 2022. Proceeds benefit the Los Angeles LGBT Center as well as the Ron Glass Memorial Scholarship Fund. For more information, go to thehellmouth.org. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. I like talking about toys and toy collecting on this show, but I don't do it often enough because I don't often get the kind of perspective I'm looking for. Usually when these topics come up, you have somebody who is very narrowly focused on a very specific type of toy or area of interest when it comes to toys. Chris Byrne is the opposite of that. He has a very broad perspective and a broad range of knowledge on the history of toys and the market forces that drive them to be what they are today. So that's why I invited him on the show. Let's get started. And on tap today, we have Chris Byrne, the head honcho behind the toyguy.com and the fantastic podcast, excuse me, The Playground, a new podcast all about toys. How are you doing today? Good, sir. I am doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Chris, I really want to talk to you about some things because I've had a couple people on the show talk about toys in the past, but I don't really get a chance to talk about them on a a historical level or a more academic level. Everybody focuses on the things they were into or maybe a moment in time, but they don't have a bigger picture. And I'd like to maybe look at that a little bit. That sounds great. I mean, I, I go to conventions and I... I like to look at old action figures and maybe pick up some stuff. And it's it's so interesting that we're now at a point when adults buying toys is a normal thing. Absolutely. And, and I think that, you know, it's, it's a concept that's called fandom. And this is the generation that grew up with toys. I mean, it's actually a generation of, of uh, I guess, Gen Xers who grew up with toys and they don't want to give them up. Why should they? So they, they, you know, they're, they're sort of the original Star Wars players. They didn't want to give them up. They moved into Marvel and, and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and all of these properties that have stayed around and new generations have found them. And I always talk about how my mother and my great aunt collected these things called Hummel figures, which were these ghastly little porcelain figures that my brothers and I always made fun of. But uh, that collecting impulse is still very strong in the culture for men and women. So you've got Barbie collectors, you've got uh, Funko collectors, you've got all kinds of collectors, and it's just a very human uh, pastime. And I try not to be too judgy, but a lot of times when an older person will say, you're a grown man buying toys, what, what's up with that? And I'm like, I, I look at the timeline just before I was born, Star Wars became big. And I'm like, I, I think our generation was the first one that had toys that didn't suck. <laughs> well, there have been a lot of toys that haven't sucked. The whole, the whole post-World War II years, they, they mm-hmm. didn't suck that, that big boom of uh, games during the 1960s. 
uh, all of those were uh, Marvin Glass and those games, Mousetrap, Dynamite Shack, Crazy Clock, all of those. Those were really great for that time. But I think what's happened in the Star Wars generation has been that they have stayed involved in the stories throughout their lives. And that story that gets expressed in a hunk of inert plastic uh, is really important to them and their identities. And I, I think that's there's actually something to that. I was being a little glib there to make my point, but I, I think that the fact that we we experience something with those generations of toys that you might not have gotten from Rock'em Sock'em Robots, for example, or that god awful wooden Superman action figure. It, it, it's something. There's something that you get from the experience of say you you got your Luke Skywalker figure and you saw the movie and that was a, a moment in your life. Yeah, and I think that it was a very important moment. And one of the things I always say, if you want to get a conversation, if you want to get a conversation started with somebody, is talk to them and say, what did you love as a kid? What did you play with? Because it brings out all of this memory and passion and connection to that inner child. And it's just, it's really important. The thing is with the current generation, you didn't have to give that up. True. And there's something to be, there, there's a feeling there when you know that what you're looking at at that con is the same thing that was on a store peg 40 years earlier, 50 years earlier. And you, you can have the option of opening it up if you really want to. Oh, yeah, if you really want to. But and the relationship to the toy changes, you are not necessarily recreating or creating your own narratives of power and conflict as you did with Star Wars in 79. Uh, but you are appreciating the story and your connection to the story and, and the myths. I mean, Star Wars and a lot of these things, these are the myths of our time, just in the way that we all read Edith Hamilton in grade school or middle school, you know, the, the Greek and Roman myths. These are the myths of our time through which we understand culture and behavior and human interaction. And I'm, I'm old enough now where when I look back at some of the things that I, I try to collect, the style and the aesthetics have changed so much culturally that it's it's worth it just as a work of art to say that this is what looked cool at one point in time, even if today we would look at it and say, wow. Yeah, if you look at some of those original Star Wars figures, they are rough. But what's happened has been CAD design and the ability to go from a digital file right to a mold to have more detail. And quite frankly, a lot of that has been driven by the sophistication of the collector. They want that detail. They want to see that accessory that the character carries in the movie. I'll give you an example. Uh, Hasbro with Star Wars, they ended up doing, and I'm going to get this wrong because I'm not a big Star Wars person, but the, there were all of those figures in that famous bar scene that they never intended to make into characters, but they did make a lot of them into characters because collectors wanted them. If there's a market, the toy company's going to go there. And that's something that, obviously changed a little bit i'm sure that in the later movies they're deliberately setting up toy figures ready to go well before the movies ever release they don't have to wait for the demand they know it's there well absolutely and, and the thing that's changed over the years is you know it when it started out is we're going to do this movie and we're going to make it and we're going to do this and then knock 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 maybe maybe there's a toy here could we talk to you please and now it's like okay we've got a movie here's the toy thing you know you put the, the producers are putting together the entire package especially in tv because the licensing fees that are paid don't cover production anymore people make it up on the back end you look at things like paw patrol and and other hot properties for kids on tv 
they're making their money in the merchandise. The merchandise where the real money from the movie is made from space balls. <laughs> Something that it, tragically never got a good toy. Uh, you know, but you know, it, it may come back as retro. You, you never know where these things are going to come from. And that's another thing about the culture today. We have, it's a very fragmented culture, but there may be Spaceballs fans all over, you know, in sort of these pockets. Well, they can get together in less than a minute on the internet. And suddenly you've got this cohort of Spaceballs fans and somebody's going to say, hey, there's enough of them out there. We should probably make a limited edition figure and we'd probably sell it. And those limited editions, I mean, just the fact knowing that there's only so many thousand out there, you want to have one for yourself. Absolutely. You, you cannot stop that collecting impulse. It really is. I think, I don't know what it is. I don't know why it is, but it is, seems so deeply seated in who we are as a species. I, I know, at least for myself, knowing that when I grew up, these things tended to come and go so quickly, there was this desire to make sure you get yours and, and you, you preserve it because, you know, it may not be in that store two months from now. It definitely won't be there two years from now. Right. And, and that's the was the nature of, of properties really from the, the late 60s on forward. If you got three years out of a property, that was something special. So Barbie remains at 63. She remains an anomaly. G.I. Joe at what, 57 or 58, um, maybe 15, 59, I guess he was 64. But anyhow, G.I. Joe remains an anomaly, but these are still around. And they've been reinvented many times, but they're still around as brands so that you can have that intergenerational connection. Uh, to maybe go back a little further than the, the, the G.I. Joe Barbie era. I mean, I, I'm a fan of Antiques Roadshow. Every okay. once in a while, they'll throw me a bone and throw some sort of like toy from the 1800s on there or something like that. And I'm, I have no frame of reference for this because it's almost like they're talking about it like, people made toys as an afterthought before the 20th century. Like, well, you know, oh, hey, maybe we'll give the kids something to distract themselves with. And it was made of paper or cardboard or something that was going to fall apart. The fact that it survived at all is a miracle. Yeah, in the, in the late 19th century, toy, I mean, toys have been around throughout all cultures. They found yo-yos when they opened the pyramids, you know? Mm -hmm. So it, it's really, toys are, are essential to children and development. But manufactured or mass-produced toys are really a 20th century phenomenon. And before the uh, industrial age, a lot of these things were homemade. Dolls were homemade. You had games and printing and lithography, certainly in the late 19th century. But there weren't the sort of toys that we really think of. I always look at the modern toy industry as really dating from World War II forward. That's, you know, kind of slippery, but, but mm -hmm. that's when you started to see the influence of TV, the influence of mass culture, sophisticated manufacturing developed for the World War II effort. Uh, that's really where the modern toy industry was born, at, le at least as I track it. So the, the seeds are planted in World War II, and the TV influence hits, let's say, the late 50s, and, and the, right. uh, but we don't get the actual fusion that, that we were looking at, this, the Star Wars effect, for another 20 years after that. Am I starting to? Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, I think that that in the 50s, at 52, you know, was was Mr. Potato Head was advertised on TV. We forget how important Captain Kangaroo was in the early 60s. Any toy that was on Captain Kangaroo became a hit. You know, when when Crayola introduced the 64 box of crayons on Captain Kangaroo, that made national news. So it's it's like, you know, that was that was a big deal. 
but I think that kids at that time certainly moved out of toys in a different way. And certainly kids today move out of toys, but maintaining a relationship with those properties, that's really a 90s and forward kind of phenomenon. And it's, it's neat that it kind of picks up there. And I'm trying to think of what exactly in, in the 90s made that was it was it the quality of the toys or was it just the culture of the people or probably something in between? Well, I think there were a couple of things that happened. You, you go back to 1983 and you have Cabbage Patch and Cabbage Patch comes out and becomes a cultural phenomenon. It was one of the first toys that really jumped from, you know, toy for kids into cultural event as people tried to get Cabbage Patch dolls. Now we'd seen that in the 30s with the Shirley Temple doll, but that was very, that was very uh, short lived. And, but, so then we fast forward to 1996, you get Tickle Me Elmo, the entire culture is talking about Tickle Me Elmo. And then the whole culture is thinking about toys in a little different way. And, and it becomes more integrated into our life. Furby, Poochie, Power Rangers, all of these things that became not just toys for kids, but cultural phenomena. And, and that was that's something I kind of pick up on when I look through old magazines and I, I see old documentaries on toys that it's almost like every toy before the mid 50s is a one off. It's something that they, they cranked out It maybe it hit big, but they never had anything to follow it up. So we don't the idea of a toy line doesn't cement itself until when would you say? I, I think really in the in the 80s and forward. And that's when we started to see the, the arrival of the MBA in toy companies and the, uh, the effort to be a branded industry, to be a branding industry. And that's when the uh, industry started to transform from being, as you say, a one-off or an item-driven business, which it was for years. I mean, a uh, company could make a, a product put it on TV. There were only three channels. So kids were watching it. They would tell Toys R Us, we're doing this. Toys R Us would buy enough of it and boom, it would be, it would be the hot thing for that group of kids for that year. I, I think of things like Kenner's panel and girdle, Gir Kenner's panels and girders, huge hit. Things like King Zor, things that we've mostly forgotten. Major Matt Mason in 1970. These are a lot of things that have, that have faded into the past. Uh, Mattel's bringing back Major Matt Mason, by the way. Uh, but it, you see that longevity really coming as brands are managed, new characters introduced, things get into multiple seasons, and kids don't give them up. It's interesting that you know we see them going back to old brands and and trying to revive things. And I hear this weird complaint from a lot of other toy fans, and that you know when they they go back to the vault, they say, "Well, now they're just in it for the money." And I'm trying to remember a time when that wasn't the case. It's, it's just the weirdest thing to, to want to complain about. Well, I, I don't think they're in, well, of course they're in it for the money, actually. <laughs> you know, they're a toy company. They're in it for the money, right? That's what they're trying to do. But the challenge with bringing something back, like Masters of the Universe, they are introducing more diverse characters. They are introducing more storylines. It's not just that sort of, male-dominated hegemony that was really kind of the subtext of all of Masters of the Universe until they introduced She-Ra, Princess of Power. But still, all of that was about boys' classic need for power and conflict play. The challenge with reintroducing something is nostalgia will only get you so far. You have to establish yourself with a new generation of kids. And in today's market, it is so crowded. 
you've got to make a lot of noise to break through. You do. And I, I've seen the new Masters of the Universe show. Was a big fan, honestly. And I, I mean, I liked the original when I was a kid too. So I think I'm, I'm kind of on solid ground when I say I'm hoping that today's kids are not going to necessarily need the male power-driven fantasy trope, whatever you want to say. That, that they, can, they can enjoy it on a level beyond that. I, I think so. I hope so. And, and the thing to remember is that toys always reflect the culture. So if you're looking at the, at the 80s where Masters of the Universe were out there, you know, we were doing Greed is Good and, and Wall Street and, you know, all of, all of that, Big Shoulders, Working Girl, you know, they, they had to compete in a male world. I think that as children are growing up in a more diverse world, a more inclusive world, they want toys that reflect the world around them. I always talk about Barbie in, in terms of this. In 1959, Barbie had two choices, fashion model, bride. That was it. You know, and now, now, you know, 63 years later, she's had umpteen careers, 100 and some odd careers. She's got new body types. She's got all new, new things. It's still Barbie, but Barbie at some point transitioned from that, that uh, character, Barbie Millicent Rogers from Willows, Wisconsin, into Barbie as a catch-all brand. And that opened it up to any girl uh, who wanted to be engaged in a doll that reflected what she saw in her world. Having a considerable Barbie enthusiast in the house who is in the proper age demographic, I'm really glad for that. I, I definitely see the value in that. And I think that the, that Barbie brand is delivering that in spades. Uh, not a lot of complaints on that. Right. I mean, you, you, you know, you're not training a Barbie fan to grow up to be, you know, a Malibu Barbie. That whole sort of beach fantasy of the mid 60s doesn't exist anymore. And Barbie really almost disappeared as the women's rights movement emerged in the late 60s. And it kind of had a lull. Barbie's had many lulls, but you go into 1985, Jill Barad introduced We Girls Can Do Anything. And that was sort of the beginning of Barbie's current trajectory. So it's been, what, 37, 36 years of, of Barbie really representing possibility for girls. And, you know, looking at the transition on Masters of the Universe, something, and I can have a little more personal experience with that. You know, when you look at the, the 80s and it's like, you know, you have the one guy who fights the bad guy and all the other characters are basically just contributing to that. And the newer shows are showing a case of, well, it's not exactly good versus evil. There's some more subtlety to it in that. And I'm thinking that's the world our kids live in today, where things are not always black and white, good versus evil. They ask a lot of complex questions about why things are the way they are. Indeed they do. And, and toys and play give them a platform to work those out, those issues out. So you have something that's abstract like Masters of the Universe, you can work that out in your fantasy play and have a vicarious experience that then if it doesn't transfer directly to your, to your world, your life, you are actually building that cognition around these kinds of issues. And I think it's very important. You look at, look at something like Paw Patrol, it's all about rescue, but it's also about cooperation and play and interaction and humor. So it really does come to a child's level as they begin to figure out how am I gonna navigate my way through the world? And creating a, a system of play where they're coming up with their own stories, their own scenarios, that's a good reflection of what they see as possible and not possible in the world. 
Absolutely, and kid, kids do that, and they they want to cast themselves in the hero role, and they want to be uh, they want to be at the center of the story. I was thinking before we got on here today, because of course we're thinking about what's going on in Ukraine and and all of that. That in the '60s you had the Man from Uncle and and all of those TV shows, and a lot of kids played secret agent because that was one way of expressing power and agency, which was I can solve the the you know the evil secret agent. So those storylines continue no matter what generation we're in. I remember, I'm a big fan of Mission Impossible as a whole, but I also like the recent movies specifically. I really think that I, they're a good time for me. Yeah. But there was a moment like about five years ago when a new one hit and it was just this feeling of, I'm not sure if I can see an espionage agency as the good guy. You know, it, it was just... There were so many things going on in the world that it was very difficult to, to connect with that. And, you know, I commend the, the movie for doing it well. But I, I think that that's something that we also have to look at as a whole. Like, remember, you know, G.I. Joe was a big thing until Vietnam hit. And then suddenly, oh, wait, wait, you know. Right. I mean, he was Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines. And he, he was a, a real American hero. And when we started to see what happened, you know, the movie Coming Home pretty much you know, explains all of that. They had to retool G.I. Joe and make him into a real American hero, take him to outer space, become more abstract because kids still wanted that power, that sense of power and agency and ability to, to combat a, a foe, but it couldn't be expressed in the same way anymore. And that's always the challenge for the toy industry. How do I express this character in a way that's acceptable or relatable to kids and reflects the culture? And, you know, fast forward about 10, 15 years later, a G.I. Joe again hits a little bit of a snag and they try to reinvent him as kind of this ecological warrior, which very off brand for the original, but within that slice of time makes sense. Yeah, it, it does make sense. And the challenge with something like G.I. Joe is really is really how the market has changed so much, how much more stuff there is out there, how much more content there is. Whenever I talk to toy companies and they show me a line, I say, that's nice. What is the child going to put down in order to pick up this item? Because there is so much st stimulation and input for kids right now, and they're getting it through phones and streaming and YouTube, that, that you really have to break through with a narrative that is so strong that a child wants to abandon one narrative and pick up another one. And that's... You know, as a big video game fan, I see a lot more young kids playing video games compared to the amount I played. And I played a lot. Don't get me wrong. I played a lot. But today, the percentage is even larger. Well, yeah, these are these are kids who, who have never lived in a world without video games. It, it's part of the air to them. And, and I always talk about Roblox as being critically important for reaching young people just as a social platform, as well as a gaming platform and a creative platform. So anybody who is in the toy industry who's not thinking about their Roblox strategy, it may be completely inappropriate. But if it is appropriate, you need to be thinking about how you're going to reach out to kids through Roblox. And I mean, if you had a new toy line, just in general, I'm not going to you know, pitch anything specific. And, and you're saying, what do I do? How do I grab that Roblox idea? How do I push that concept? Well, what's the first step in that? Well, I think it's, it's developing... I think with Roblox, one of the things that we've seen that's been successful is that people create 
elements of a toy that can go into a successful Roblox game. And it's kind of like, you know, in a TV series when, you know, the next door neighbor visits and the next door neighbor visits enough time and then they decide, oh, we're going to spin off the next door neighbor into their own show. You know, how did Maud come out of all in the family? That'll date me, but, but uh, that's, it's really the same idea. It, you know, there's not a lot of new stuff under the sun because people don't change that much, but it's really engaging somebody with that to the extent that they say, hey, I want to have that. And then it's looking at how do I engage kids through content? Because we've changed the way kids consume media. Kids expect to interact with media now. They don't, they are not passive consumers anymore. So they want to have a, an app or they want a way to interact as they're doing it, even if it's just texting with a friend. And I think that gives kids a lot of credit in a way that we're not, we, we tend to picture today's kids as just, you know, sitting on a couch, tapping a screen and that doesn't do them enough justice. Well, they're smart. They're, they're smart. They're engaged. They're creative. I mean, look at, look at what teenagers have done with TikTok to undermine political, political things. I mean, they are clever and they are engaged and they are really, they're really smart and they know how to use technology in a way that baffles many adults. And when it comes to how technology is changing stuff, I, for one, still mourn the loss of Toys R Us. I think it's, it's left a big hole in not just this, this market and the way of serving customers, but I think culturally, not necessarily that particular toy store, but having a mainstream toy store was a big deal for a long time. And we're still missing something because of it. I absolutely agree with you. I think that Toys R Us was such an effective launching platform for so many brands. And it was a destination for kids. We forget about that. And you go back to Toys R Us, I think, was founded in 1947. And that's after the Second World War, the baby boom. And it was the whole toy supermarket idea. So just as the, the uh, post-war moms, were, they would shop for toys. And the thing that they always did that was clever they had the least expensive disposable diapers at Toys R Us all the way at the back of the store. So if mom was shopping, she had to go all the way to the back of the store every week to do that. But it was also a destination for kids. And, you know, Walmart and Target have done a great job with their toy department, but it's not the same as walking in and just seeing, you know, toys everywhere you can see. When I was a kid, I was lived in a very rural area. So the vast majority of my toy shopping was done in my local supermarket. I could get there once a week. They had what they had. But Toys R Us for me, which I got to maybe twice a year, huh? maybe, if I knew if I went there, they would legit have whatever I wanted. There, if, it, if it existed, they had it in stock. And that was the idea behind, that, that was the draw for me. Absolutely. And, and it was where you found out about new things. And it was where you, for me, I was really into Matchbox cars, so I was always curious to see what were the new Matchbox cars or the new Hot Wheels cars or things like that. And interestingly enough, years ago, like in the 90s, we talked to a bunch of kids and they put a trip to Toys R Us and a trip to Disney World on the same level in terms of you know, des desire of what, of what they wanted to do. It's like, can I go to Disney World? No. Can we go to Toys R Us? Yes. You know, and yay, we're going to Toys R Us. I can see that for sure. And I mean, it was, it was, I said, they would have it in stock and yet uh, it, it was a pain in the butt to get to. So again, the effort to get to it made the difference. Right. right. And, but I, I mean, now kids, we say that they can get anything they want online, but shopping online for toys 
when the problem with having an endless selection is that you you never there's always so much to go through. There's always one more page to scan through. You might still miss stuff that way. Right. And and Toys R Us, remember, they did their big toy book every year. It came in your Sunday paper. And mm -hmm. it was, uh, you know, it was kind of like, it was like the Sears catalog had been. It was that you could, in one place, you could flip through and see, oh, I want this or, oh, I want that. or, And it was a way of seeing a totality out there, which the online experience, as good as it is in many cases, you're sort of looking at toys in isolation, clicking from one to the other. You don't, kids don't get that sense of, the totality of something quite as easily. And that, I think that's what I was trying to say rather badly, is that when you're, you have an aisle to walk down, you can start to find weird little things that might miss your attention when you just type in Transformers, Paw Patrol. When you just start to see, and somebody's trying to start up a new toy line from a small company and it has one row of peg hooks, you might see it, you might not, but at least it's there. Yeah. And it's a way you found out about things and it's a way you shared things and would go with your friends and it became, it wasn't just buying toys, it was a whole experience. And I think that we've, we've really lost that, that sort of sense of magic for kids in that way. Now, if you go to, to Canada, you've got places like Mastermind, uh, which does a, a very good job with that. And we've got a lot of specialty stores around the United States that do a very good job with that, but they have limited square foot. They're not the, they're not the 10, 20,000 square foot stores that a, that a Toys R Us was. But at the same time, there is, I was recently in one in, uh, in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, and kids are walking around with their eyes big and looking at things. And you know that's the experience that Toys R Us really was that, that we don't have right now. And I'm just curious why nothing's filled that void. It seems like an obvious need in the market. I could not agree with you more. I, I think it's, it is an obvious need. And I think it's a, it's a challenge because how do, you, how do you scale it up? How do you, how do, you do that? And I, I, I don't know. I really, I've, I've talked to the, to the CEO of Mastermind up in Canada and I told her, you got to come down to the United States. She goes, eh, one thing at a time, you know, because I mean, it, it's, I, I forget how many hundreds and hundreds of stores Toys R Us had at the end, 700 some odd stores. Um, you know, it's, it's really hard to, to ramp that up, but I think somebody will come along and do that, especially as shopping has, has changed a lot. We've gone away from that supermarket model to a little bit more experiential. I mean, look at an Apple store, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of time spent in the Apple store. And I know people have tried to do that, the challenge is in retail, you have to, the metric is how much volume, how much revenue volume per square foot. So that's a big challenge with toys when margins are so slight. Margins are slight and everybody's, you know, everybody goes to Walmart, everybody goes to Target. So their foot traffic is built into the equation. You don't have to worry about bringing people to the shop. Yeah. And, and yet I just feel like even with people trying to shop online, there's got to be a, a time and place when you want to take your kids somewhere, when you want to give them that experience, because, you know, let's be honest, sometimes it's not easy to find something to do with your kid when you just have an hour and a half to spare on an afternoon. Really? Uh, that's absolutely true. And, and you've got here in New York, you've got like FAO Schwartz, the Nintendo store, American Girl, Lego store, all in one concentrated area in Rockefeller Center. But those are, those are destinations. Those are like attractions in New York land, right? Mm -hmm. like, 
Space Mountain uh, at Disney. But it, it's, uh, it's not, it, again, it's not the same. It becomes kind of a, a rare experience rather than a regular experience. I know when I was growing up, we had, we had five and 10 cent stores and my dad would do the grocery shopping and my brothers and I would go up, walk up to the five and 10 cent store. And that's where we would see models and cars and games. And we didn't have any money. I mean, we had a small allowance. But that's what we knew. We said, oh, we want that game. And then we would write to Santa for it. Mm -hmm. And those five and 10 cent stores here, which is might be a concept very few of the listeners even get because it's <laughs> we've so moved away from that in retail. It's not even funny. I had one when I was a kid, too. So I'm, I get you. But it's like that stuff was just cheap enough that if it was a good week, you know, if you saved a couple extra bucks on the grocery bill, your parents might be talking to get you that this or that. Right, right. And that's and right now, the way that happens is you have things like uh, LOL Surprise, Shopkins, a lot of these collectibles that are that are under $10 that are sort of impulse buys that are often merchandised near the checkout. They're merchandised kind of like candy. So if a mom is saying, well, toy or candy, well, toy is, you know, I'd rather give you toy than more candy. So it really is the, the essence of that is still there. The experience isn't quite the same. I never thought of that. And I've actually spent a lot of time wondering about the popularity of the blind bag purchases with kids. Because as a kid, I, I had that here and there and I never really cared for it because I thought, you know, if I only have $4 to spend on this toy, I want to know what I'm getting. Right. I won't get this $4 again anytime soon. So I want to get something I know I'll like. Right. The, the risk would be too much for me as a kid, but mine likes it. I, all the other kids in the class seem to like it, and I didn't quite get what the appeal was. I think it's, it's the mystery and the chase, and you have to be engaged in the franchise to do it. You, have to, you can't just do it uh, because it's a blind bag, like a grab bag. But I think that when you've got an established property, that, that blind bag is kind of exciting. What am I going to get? We live in a time now where unboxing, I'm sure you, you know, is, is really important. And I had this discussion as, as internet shopping started to rise with people and they said, we're not going to need packages anymore. Well, now you need packages more than ever mm -hmm. because the play experience begins with opening the box now. In many cases, it, it begins, um, you know, the Magic Mixies Cauldron last year, the play experience begins as you open the box. And I think that that's, that's kind of, you want to make that dramatic. You do. And it, we talk about the mystery that kids have. And I mean, even when I was a kid and there was no un, unboxing, wasn't a thing that the, breaking that seal, pulling that stuff out of the box for the first time, especially a toy you had to put together, which was a project by itself. <laughs> it was the thing that made that bearable. Right. Oh yeah. And it, it's just, you know, and I think it, again, it, it, it engages the kid and in many cases, you know, and now we've got companies like MGA that are looking at how do I make this unboxing experience still rich for the kids, but also be more ecologically responsible. And there's some really cool innovations that I can't talk about yet that I'm seeing that, that it's going to continue that and at the same time uh, be environmentally conscious. So we're, we're appealing both to the kid for who wants that play experience and increasingly the Gen Z parent who's very concerned about the state of the, of the planet. The fact that we've gotten away from so much of the clear plastic and the bubbles and moved back toward paper packaging and a minimal amount of that as well is a very welcome sight for me. 
It is. And, and that's been driven a lot by retail. Walmart, I think, wanted to make sure that things were tied with twine rather than plastic. Uh, I may have that wrong, but that's what that's what I've been told. But again, they are, you know, there is an understanding, again, reflecting the culture of how to be responsible and deliver a play experience. I mean, the toy industry is a plastics-based industry. We are we are always going to be, you know, petroleum dependent to the extent, to a certain extent. Yes, there are corn-based plastics and sugarcane-based plastics, but for the for right now, it, it's that petroleum-based plastic. So manufacturers are looking at, well, how can I accept that fact and be more ecologically responsible? It's it's rough and. Then you get to cases where you look at all the little widgets that are holding the things together, the little part trees, and you just hope that at least the vast majority of it stays intact in that toy where it gets reused until it burns into the ground. Right, right. Yeah, but it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge that the toy industry has had ever since plastic started coming into plastics replaced other materials, metal and wood, things like that. And uh when it comes to the way that uh, we started to package things, do you have a, a feeling on slabbing valuable toys? Do you find that, that that is beneficial for the culture, beneficial for the hobby? To do what with toys? Slabbing, uh, grading, encasing. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, I think that toys are meant to be played with. And I think that for collectors, maybe that would work. I, the reason that a mint 1959 Barbie is worth so much is because they were played with. And whenever I see one, I think, well, that's awfully sad. Some child didn't get a Barbie in 1959. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I absolutely love that. I'd be full disclosure. Um, I have a few things. Most of my collection has been taken out of the package, put on a shelf, played with, displayed, used in some way, shape or form. There's a few things, like less than five, where I feel like the rarity or the uniqueness of it has made me compelled to encase it specially so that it can be preserved. Right. It's an exception, not the rule. Yeah, and I, and I think that really depends upon the collector. I have, I have only a few toys that I'm not like working on uh, here. I have a 1960 Mr. Machine, which I love, which was a, which was a transformational toy. Uh, and I have Mattel Greeny Stick'em Caps, which were, uh, my brothers and I used to, they, they were caps, like the exploded. My brothers and I used to take them and put them on the underside of the toilet seat in my parents' bathroom. <laughs> so when my mom would come in and, and slap the seat pad, the cap would go off. <laughs> I'm sure that went over very, very well. You know, she learned to check this toilet seat <laughs> pretty quickly. I would too. <laughs> Well, this is this is a great conversation, and I, I think there's a lot here that I still want to unpack maybe later on. But this podcast you have, um, where do you like? To, where do you take this, and and maybe how's it different from the conversation we're having now? Well, it's called the Playground Podcast, and I do it with uh, Richard Gottlieb, who is a, another toy expert, and his background is is sales and M and A and. Uh, my background is more product and cognitive development, child development. So we balance sort of the left brain, right brain, if you will, of the, of the toy business. We talk to a lot of people in the toy business about where is the business going? It's a lot of inside baseball. There's a lot of conversation going on right now about moving the New York Toy Fair to September in 2023. 
and it moved around in the first quarter, second quarter for a hundred years, but now moving it is, is a big issue. So we delve into that. We delve into issues like supply chain and shipping and, and things that, that people mostly in the toy industry would want to know. But there's, we do talk to some fun people. We've got an upcoming uh, uh, episode with a guy by the name of Barry Schwartz. Barry Schwartz is a publicist who introduced Lego to the United States in 1960 and was involved in so many other things. And so he's got great stories. So we're, we're looking forward to sharing those. That sounds really interesting. I have thought a lot about the different directions Lego has taken over the years, the twists and turns, that it, and yet it is it, it, it works. Well, I will, I will tell you that it was originally made in the United States by the Samsonite Luggage Company because the president of Samsonite Luggage was in uh, Denmark he saw them, he brought back a suitcase full of them uh, because Samsonite was making plastic suitcases at the time. And he was the first manufacturing licensee of Lego in the United States. Wow. <laughs> now, were those original Legos up to the same standard as the ones in Denmark? I, I think they've always been. I mean, that's one cool thing about Lego. They are, they are very, very uh, precise about the, about the manufacturing because that's always been their thing. That was the patent that they lost several years ago or that, that expired because their patent on how they did those, those, that connection mechanism, nobody was able to, to replicate that. When the patent expired, Megablocks did and the lawsuit and blah, blah, blah. But, but so Legos had to continue to innovate in other directions. That, and I remember mid nineties, Lego started to make these changes. They started doing more licensing. They branched out into types of uh, designs that they hadn't done before. That was the first time they made gendered Legos, which was something that they had always kind of been against right. for a while. Cause they were like, it's Legos. It's not gendered in the first place. And I, I kind of get that logic to be very honest with you. But, yeah, and I think that one of the things that was, I think it was 99 that Lego got the uh, star Wars license and they got it because Hasbro didn't want to get into the construction business. And they, they, they passed on construction and then that went, to, that went to, to Lego. But again, it reflects the culture because before that, Lego was okay, it was doing fine, but you start adding the licenses and stuff that reflects different aspects of the, of the culture, the gendered stuff. Some of the collectors, collectibles now are really great. You know, that $500 Hogwarts castle is not going to a six-year-old. I'm just no. saying. <laughs> I'm having so much fun. I should let you go, but there's one more thing I want to touch on really before I do that. Okay. And, and that is, what's your take on the fact that Hasbro has gulped up pretty much all the individual smaller toy lines and Mattel has grabbed pretty much everything else? Has the, the putting everything under a couple big umbrellas had any effects on the industry we don't think about? Well, I, th I think the effect it's had on the industry is, is these are two multinational com companies that can give a small brand or a small item access to the global market. That said, there is still a lot of creativity and fun stuff coming from small entrepreneurial companies out there. Maybe, maybe they'll be acquired, but I think that the change in the dynamic has been that a lot of the, I mean, Hasbro and Mattel have amazing design design capabilities and they do amazing stuff, hands down. But there's also a lot of small inventors out there, small toy companies that are bringing things to market and are getting, getting placement and, and doing very well. So I think it's had an impact in terms of global distribution. 
I think that desire to create and make a toy, they're never going to kill that in a lot of individuals who are, are going to commit it to it. They're going to they're going to mortgage the house, as I know a couple of have to bring their idea to market. Awesome. Chris, thanks so much for being here. I could keep running with this, but I want to be respectful of your time. Where can people find you and your adventures on the Internet? Uh, well, the Playground Podcast is at theplaygroundpodcast.com and my website, thetoyguy.com. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter as The Toy Guy. I will make sure all that goes into the show notes on my website, aaronbossig.com. Thanks so much for being here, buddy. I would love to have you back anytime. This was so much fun. I love talking about this stuff. Thank you so much. I would like to thank Chris for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. There is a wealth of information on toys on the internet in all ways, shapes, and forms, so I'm not going to pretend that you're going to be hurting for information out there. But one of the things I love about podcasts is it gives us a good way to communicate and talk about these things. And so I'm going to open up the Good Pods app here and see what else is out there in terms of action figure podcasts. And I just found a brand new one called the Action Figure Call-In Show. This is very new. It started in 2022. There's only four episodes on here. And this is the kind of thing I might have missed if it weren't for an app like Good Pods. These guys get together, they take questions and commentary from their audience, and you know, if they even have an audience to give them commentary, that shows the quality of their work right there. So I am hopefully going to recommend some people go check them out as well. Don't forget you can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.